The scripture passage that we're considering this morning is found in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. The writer of Hebrews says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year, every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we would ask for your Holy Spirit to be our guide, uh, the one who would illuminate truth, the one who would lead us into an understanding of this passage, uh, to the result, Lord God, that we would give Jesus glory first place in our lives and desire to serve him faithfully in every way. We would pray, Father, for you to graciously use your scriptures, uh, the primary means of grace to us, uh, to do what you intend to do by your word, and that the result of our listening to scripture would be that your word would not return unto you void, that it would accomplish the purposes for which you have sent it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with a reminder that on the day of resurrection, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, he actually communicated to his disciples about the Old Testament scriptures and about himself in a way that he had never previously done in his earthly ministry. On that particular day, uh, the evening of that day, he appeared to his disciples as they were locked up together, fearful of the Jewish leadership. As they were locked up together, he appeared to them and demonstrated to them that he was not a ghost, he was not a spirit. Uh, He ate fish in front of their presence. But then he did something that was absolutely decisive with respect to their future ministry, with respect to how they were going to proclaim Christ Uh, throughout the rest of their days. 
We read these words in Luke chapter 24, 44 and 47. Jesus says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now we know when Jesus says uh, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he's using a customary manner in which the Jews would talk about the scrolls of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, There are three principal divisions. The first five books of Moses... Uh, the prophets, which included actually the historical books, and then the Psalms, which included all the wisdom literature. So Jesus is referring to all of the Old Covenant, all of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew Scriptures, when he says that all of these things written about me. So once again, Jesus is emphasizing to his disciples all parts of the Hebrew Scriptures have testified about him. He has come to fulfill them. And then we go on to read verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, what we see here is that Jesus enabled his disciples, those who were going to be the apostles, of the church. He enabled them to understand the Old Testament scriptures so that they would see Christ everywhere that Christ was written about in the Old Testament scriptures. They would understand how to proclaim Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. They would know how to uh, present the word of God in such a way that the glory of Christ would be revealed. Specifically, Jesus is saying, these Old Testament scriptures proclaim, foretell his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, the necessity of repentance, forgiveness of sins in his name, and how the message itself should be proclaimed to all the nations under earth, all the nations under heaven throughout the earth, beginning in Jerusalem. So, here's the point. Whenever we have the New Testament writers looking at an Old Testament passage and pointing to Christ, this is not something based upon their own imagination. This is not coming out of some kind of uh, religious genius that they might possess. What they are doing is expounding the Old Testament scriptures according to the Holy Spirit's work in them in accordance with what Jesus himself had said about how the Old Testament scriptures proclaimed him. That needs to be understood. So that whenever we come to how the New Testament writers interpret the Old Testament, we must understand that they're infallible. They have gotten the correct understanding by the Spirit of God with respect to what God intended those scriptures to mean. Uh, We can't believe that somehow they missed it when Jesus himself specifically opened up their minds for this kind of understanding. So that gives us all confidence that all that the New Testament says about Christ with respect to the Old Testament is absolutely the message from God. Now, last Sunday, uh, we noted that uh, uh, when we looked at 
the books of Moses, we covered a lot of places where the books of Moses, Moses himself testified about Christ. But we also looked at how the next stage in redemptive history places a great deal of emphasis upon the kingship of David, the covenant God made with David, and even the fact that David was a prophet, that he himself prophesied about the Christ, his greater son who was to come. When we look then to David, when we recognize he was a prophet, when we also know that almost half of the Psalms were written by David, that we begin to understand where in the Psalms in particular do we find the foretold message about Christ. And we can find them in those Psalms written by David. Now, we will not have an opportunity to look at all of the places. But if you were to read through all of the Psalms and read through specifically all the Psalms of David, and if you were to identify all the passages which the New Testament itself points to as having been fulfilled in Christ, you would come up with what we might call the messianic theology of David. You would come up with an understanding of what David foreknew because he was foretold about the Christ. And there are several principal themes that you would find if you were to do this kind of a study. Uh, the first theme, which we will look at today, would be the mission of Christ. What did David know about the mission of Christ coming into the world? And then with respect to that mission, uh, you would also see that that mission was rejected, rejected by the people of Israel, rejected by the, the leadership of Israel. And that rejection then moves to another theme, the, the suffering that the Messiah was going to experience by virtue of being rejected by his own people and the nature of that suffering in terms of crucifixion. You would also see that that suffering was not going to be the final word concerning the Messiah, but that the Old Testament and the theology of David, the foretold theology that David received, that the Messiah was going to die, but he was going to be resurrected, he was going to be exalted, he was going to actually sit at the Father's right hand. So not only do you have the theme then of rejection and suffering, you have the theme of final victory in terms of his resurrection, his exaltation, his sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, those are the things that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks in terms of this theology that we find in the Psalms that are written by David. Uh, in a manner to help us understand that when we read the New Testament, we see these things mentioned by New Testament writers. When we read the Psalms of David themselves, we can recognize that the knowledge that David had concerning the Christ to come was, in fact, a rather profound and deep kind of knowledge. Uh, it was, in fact, such that, that David himself knew what his greater son was going to do not only to be the king who would sit upon his throne eternally, but to even know the history of how that would happen, the major parts of the history of how that would work out in the life of the Messiah. Now this morning I want us to consider 
uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, how he addresses uh, from a psalm of David, Psalm chapter 40, the middle part of that psalm, the very mission of Christ. Uh, In that mission, we will see the mission of Christ essentially as this, that Jesus has come to replace the Levitical sacrifices by the sacrifice of himself on behalf of all those who would draw near to God through Christ. And that in that sacrifice, they would find themselves properly perfected and sanctified in a way that the Levitical sacrifices of the law of Moses could never accomplish. And that in order to accomplish this mission, Jesus would come into this world in the body that God had prepared for him to offer up himself as that all-sufficient sacrifice, that substitute to put away sin. The mission of Christ. Now, with that idea of mission, we can sort of outline what the writer here is saying in three particular points. We can put it this way. Uh, First, the impossible mission of the law. The impossible mission of the law. We'll talk about how the law had a mission, but that mission was impossible to fulfill. Uh, Then we can see the proclaimed mission of Christ. Christ foretelling what his mission was to be. And then the writer of Hebrews actually points then finally to that mission accomplished, what Christ accomplished in his mission. So three simple ideas. The impossible mission, the proclaimed mission, and the accomplished mission. Now, in the first four verses of chapter 10, we have the impossible mission of the law stated. Uh, Why did the law have a mission at all? Why did God give the law in the first place? Well, it all is connected to human sin, human disobedience. It's the fall of mankind that in the history of redemption made the giving of the law to be absolutely necessary. Sin separates us from God. So when God was claiming a people for himself, he had to have a way in which those people could come near to him, could worship him in the context of the fact that they were sinful human beings. And so God presented in the law all those things surrounding the Levitical sacrifices. There was the priesthood, uh, there was the tabernacle, and then the temple, and there were all the ceremonies that involved how human beings are to approach a holy God and their sinfulness. How they were to do this, of which the sacrifices were the essential piece. The point is, is that the wages of sin is death. The point is, every sin against God is a capital crime. Every sin against God deserves death. And so the sacrificial system was a way of presenting a death to God on behalf of the sinner. Now, what the writer of Hebrews points out in the first place is that the system, the system itself was a shadow. He starts out by saying that the law was a shadow of the good things to come. That is to say, a shadow 
as opposed to the substance and the reality. I know if you were to ask a child, which would you prefer to have? The shadow of an ice cream comb or an ice cream comb, they would very clearly see that the shadow gets them nothing. Well, in a sense, the shadow that is contained in the law had no genuine substance of its own. It was representational. It was something that was presented to teach the people of God that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. None at all. Human disobedience is the focal point of the entire sacrificial law. Human disobedience, it merits you death. You need some way to come into the presence of a holy God. Therefore, the law is going to give you that death in the form of a perfect, unblemished animal dying in your place. And by this method, you can draw near to God. But the writer is going to go on to say, because it was a shadow, it never effected the realities that it symbolized. It was a shadow of the good things to come. It did not convey the substance of those things themselves. The law of sacrifices never actually got anybody the forgiveness of their sins. Now, he goes on to say in verse 2, he points out this factor. And he does it by virtue of a rhetorical question. Consciousness of sin. He says, if the Levitical law sacrifices had been capable of actually erasing your disobedience, why would you still have a consciousness of being a sinful and disobedient human being? So he's speaking to that subjective factor that the Jews themselves must have known that they experienced. We've offered all these sacrifices, but we're not really truly uh, feeling like we're thoroughly and completely, with any kind of finality, cleansed from our sins. We still have a consciousness that we are disobedient human beings. He goes on in verse 3 to give another factor. It's the repetition of the sacrifices. Uh, The sacrificial system wasn't Come now, once in your lifetime, we offer this sacrifice for you, and you're cleared forever. No, it was done year after year after year. The two great sacrificial times, the Passover in the spring, the Day of Atonement in the fall, they all testified to the fact, year after year after year, in your family life, in your personal life, you're a sinful human being. In your community life, in your national life, you're a sinful human being. And the repetition year after year after year spoke to the fact that these sacrifices never truly expiated the guilt of sinful human beings nor removed the wrath of God. But the most significant point of substance is what the writer says in verse 4. It's about the insufficiency of animal sacrifices. He says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. Animal sacrifices do not and cannot in themselves cover the sins of disobedient human beings. 
it's impossible to do so. Now, I want you to think about, think about this for a moment. <clears throat> I'm fine. <laughs> think about this for a moment. We have a system that God established. We have a system that God established with an innate and intrinsic deficiency. The deficiency is that it could never accomplish what it symbolized. So the system was itself symbolic, representational, but it never carried with it the actuality of the things that it spoke of. It was a shadow, not the substance of the things that are to come. And its greatest deficiency was in the fact that the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove the consequences of human sin. They cannot expiate human guilt. They cannot propitiate the wrath of God. Now, this deficiency shows up in many places in Scripture where God demonstrates his own dissatisfaction with the sacrificial system. That there's something more that's required than just the sacrificial system. In fact, it's said many times that those who come to worship cannot simply offer sacrifices, but the true nature of the sacrifice must be found in that the worshiper having a broken and contrite and repentant and obedient heart. Now, that's the charge that Samuel, the prophet, brings against King Saul. When Saul offered sacrifices, but they were in disobedience to the word of God. 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verse 22. Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now the idea here is that there must be this internal and heart-centered desire to obey the voice of God, to obey his word. There must be a genuine returning unto the Lord whenever a sacrifice is offered because the greater concern of God is that disobedient human beings would live in faithful obedience to God. But the law of Moses, with all of its worship, its rituals, its ceremonies, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all of this and everything that the law required could never make a person perfect. It had no greater power or reality than a shadow. It could never take away the sins of disobedient people. It could never change them, transform them. It could never render them perfect before God. Essentially for this reason, animal sacrifices could never truly satisfy the requirement of God that the wages of sin is death. In other words, the death of an animal's life cannot pay the debt of human disobedience. The guilt 
is never really canceled through the death of an animal. So, the impossible mission of the law. When the law is looked to for salvation, the law fails. The law looked to as the means by which we must be saved absolutely fails. To conceive of the law and its mission as that which would bring salvation is to conceive of the mission of the law in an impossible manner. As the Apostle Paul says, why then was the law given? The law was given so that transgressions might increase. The law never failed in pointing out and condemning human beings as disobedient before God. But the law could never achieve that impossible mission of bringing anyone salvation by obedience to the law. So, that's the first part of what the writer of Hebrews is having to say, which sets up then his quotation of this messianic prophetic passage out of a psalm of David, Psalm chapter 40, uh, verses uh, 6 through 8. So he, he, he quotes them in this way. So this is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through the first half of verse 9. He writes, Consequently, when Christ came into the world... He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Now, Christ here is speaking to God the Father. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, meaning Christ, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me, in the scroll of the book. Now then, in verse 8, and the first half of verse 9, the writer of Hebrews gives his infallible exposition of what this prophecy in the Psalm of David actually meant. He goes on to say that Christ here is proclaiming his mission. Now the first part of that mission is Christ is declaring that the law of sacrifices has truly failed to satisfy God. Verse 8, Christ says, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Now, the reason why this is so is what we've already looked at. We've seen that the debt for human disobedience is far greater than what the death of an animal could ever properly satisfy. An animal's death cannot discharge the debt of human disobedience. God is not satisfied morally and according to his righteousness and justice with the death of an animal. So the question arises, if God has not taken pleasure in them, then the all-important question must be, what is it that would give God pleasure? What is it that would satisfy the righteous requirements of God? Well, that's the second part of Christ proclaiming his mission. Verse 9. 
He says, Behold, I have come to do your will, even as it is written in the scroll of the book. Now, thinking about this in terms of um, when David wrote this, uh, the principal scripture that would have been the scroll of the book would have been the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, We don't know that there was any more scripture written uh, such that David would have been referring to that in terms of the scroll of the book. But we do know for sure that it's the first five books because the first five books were finished and used in Israel uh, hundreds of years before even David's time. But note what the mission is. Christ is declaring that the actual mission of his life is to do what is written in the book of God, to do the will of God as it is written in the book of God. Obedience to the will of God is the mission of Christ. Obedience to the revealed will of God as God has declared it to the Jews. His mission is to live out in his human existence a perfect obedience to the will of God. That is, to live a sinless life. To live a perfect life. To obey all things that the law has required. To do all things where human beings themselves have failed to live in obedience to God. Every way in which human beings have failed, it is the calling of Christ to fully live out before God the perfection of what is required. To live out a moral and spiritually perfect life of obedience before God. Now, in his ministry, Jesus made it very clear that he understood that to be his mission. And that obedience to his father was a proper way of summarizing his mission. In John 4, 34, the story of the woman at the well, when the disciples come back, Jesus says to them, they're asking him, you know, Master, Lord, are you hungry? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The very thing that Jesus says sustains him is the fact that he is doing the work and the will of the Father who sent him. In John chapter 8, in his controversies with the Jewish leaders, who are always looking for some way to validly charge Jesus with breaking the law, he says this, John 8, 46, Which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, he could have added, And you know countless times you have tried. But which of you have been able to actually convict me of sin? None of them had, none of them could. And then John 17, verse 4. In his final high priestly prayer, we call it, Jesus says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
That is, whatever was the Father's will with respect to Christ and his mission, Jesus had fully accomplished it. Now, the writer to Hebrews, and what he has said in earlier chapters in his book, he has already emphasized this about Jesus, the significance of the obedience, the faithfulness of Christ's obedience. In chapter 4, verse 15, he's written, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And then chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So the mission that Christ proclaims here in prophecy was that he came to do the will of God so that he himself could say he was without sin. He was perfect in holiness and in innocence, unstained by sin, separated from sinners because he was without sin, separated from from everyone else because his perfect obedience fully qualified him to offer himself without blemish to God as the perfect human sacrifice sufficient to pay the debt of human sin. Now the last part of what the writer says here the latter half of verse 9 and verse 10, speaks to not only was this the mission of Christ, but it speaks to how Christ accomplished that mission. Reading verse 9, the second half. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, the will that Jesus perfectly did, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the writer says that this mission of Christ is twofold. It has a first part that then establishes the second. The first is this, verse 9b. He does away with the first to establish the second, which is to say he does away with the Levitical system everything connected to the Old Covenant, he does away with that in order to establish what he came to do. Now, it's just interesting here that uh, I looked at several translations as well as the Greek, and all of our English translations give a rather vanilla interpretation of the words, he does away. Vanilla, meaning that is the, 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 the term of least strength compared to what the primary meaning of this verb happens to be in the Greek. The Greek has as its first concept of this Greek word, to kill. To put to death. Then it goes on to include ideas like this, to do away with, to abolish, to invalidate, 
to make an end to. So in other words, the writer is saying, Jesus kills the first. Jesus does away with the first. Jesus abolishes the first. Jesus abrogates the first. Jesus invalidates the first. All of those ideas with respect to what Jesus came to do. In order that, he could do the second. The work of Christ decisive in terms of finishing, accomplishing, doing away with the old covenant. That's what Christ says first. To kill, as it were, everything that the law required in order to establish what he had come to do. Now, that message was vital to the Jews. It was absolutely crucial to the readers of the book of Hebrews. Because it was their constant struggle, a struggle of faith, to release, to give up those ceremonial practices that had been drummed into them all of the days of their lives, as well as 1,500 years of their history. The message of the gospel was so radically surprising. Uh, The apostles had to call a council to make sure that everyone understood this. No Jew has to continue doing anything at all with respect to the law of Moses, and no Gentile can ever be brought in and and put under that requirement. Why? Jesus killed the first, invalidated the first in order to establish the second. Now, some of you may have known people who have come out of a highly legalistic form of Christianity or sub-Christianity. And I can tell you that it is very challenging for them to give up food regulations and festival regulations and holy days it's difficult for them to think that they're not sinning if they eat meat on Fridays or if they don't go to particular services or they don't celebrate things that they found in the Jewish calendar. It becomes hard for them to actually believe this. Now, these are, these are systems that were never as it were imprinted upon people as it was upon the Jews. And for the Jews to be told in the book of Hebrews... What a great step of radical faith to now surrender all of that. For what? To trust Jesus. And to trust Jesus alone for their salvation. But the writer of Hebrews says that Christ came into this world to put away decisively the first in order to establish the second And the second is what he says here. That he himself would, by the offering of himself, perfect and sanctify for all time those who draw near to God. True sanctification. True spiritual cleansing. True making holy. True pardon of sin. True forgiveness of sin. The true removal of guilt with respect to our sin. All of this accomplished by Christ doing the will 
of his Father. Perfectly living out all holy aspects of obedience to the law. Perfectly substituting himself without blemish as a sacrifice to pay the debt for human sin. By the offering of the body of Jesus Christ as the true sacrifice to pay the debt for human disobedience. Now let's wrap these three big ideas up. The writer's concerned to make it clear to the Jews that the law had an impossible mission. The law could never be your salvation because the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for your sin. But in the theology of that great prophet and king David, we have the mission of the Messiah proclaimed. And that mission is he came into this world so that he could live that life perfectly obedient to all the law of God so that he then could offer up himself as that all-sufficient sacrifice that would pay for the human debt of sin. And then the writer says, and Christ accomplished that. He put away the first in order to establish the second. Jesus is that perfect sacrifice that satisfies God himself in terms of his holiness and justice and righteousness so that by trusting faith in Christ, we have that everlasting life that God has promised to those who draw near to God through Christ. That's the gospel. That is the good news. Now listen very carefully as I close. You have no greater problem in your life and you have no greater crisis in your life but that at the root of it is the sinfulness of the human condition. That is to say, you may have great need for doctor care. You may have great need for counseling care. You may have great need for a new job. You may have great need for legal help. You may have great need to have some way out of an oppressive situation or crushing circumstances. But here is the truth. Nothing broken ever gets perfectly fixed in this life in terms of everything on the horizontal, in terms of all the circumstances of life. Nothing broken ever gets perfectly fixed. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulations. But, he said, I have overcome the world. What we need the most, quoting a Christmas hymn, Beneath life's crushing load. What we need the most is to know that we are right with God. That God is for us. That God causes all things to work ultimately and finally for our good. For those who love him, who are the called according to his purposes. And we know this.
when we've trusted Jesus and his blood, his death, to cover our sins and to reconcile us to the Father. And to know that is to know that even now, Jesus is at the Father's right hand interceding for you in all the circumstances of life. So that the Apostle Paul could say, as he does to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. The mission of Jesus. He's done all this for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. And may it be that we never, ever, Father, forget, never, ever live apart from what Christ has done for us, that we might live for him. In his name we pray. Amen.